You know, um, just a little bit of trivia. Do you know why churches like CPC in the Protestant part of the faith who have traditional services, their pastors tend to wear, not always, but tend to wear black robes? It goes back to the Reformation, actually, in the 1500s. And it was then that as the reformers were taking a look at the practices and the theology of the church, and they were trying to bring it under the Word of God and bring it in line with the Word of God, that they they came to the conclusion that we shouldn't no longer have priests in the church because priests were of the Old Testament. And Jesus, the high priest, came, and he took care of all that when he went to the cross. And so we have, in our tradition, we call them ministers of the word of, in sacrament or pastors. Along with that, they took a look at the robes that the priests wore, and they tend to be white and very ornate. And they said, you know what? Our pastors are primarily teachers of the word. And so therefore, they're going to wear what teachers wear in that day of the 1500s. They wore black robes. So there you go. That was free. No extra charge for that. <laughs> but I just thought as I stood here in my teacher robe, I would give you all, the students, right? I would give you all a pop quiz, all right? Is that okay? You don't have a choice because I'm the teacher, and that's what they do, right? So here's my pop quiz. It's not going to be on Bible trivia. It is going to be about TV teachers. So I'm going to show you a slide. You're going to look at it, and then you're going to shout out at the top of your voice so all can hear if you're right or wrong. Don't, don't matter. Just, we're not grading you. I am going to give participation points, though, so... Just saying. You name, name the name of the show and then the teacher. Here's the first one. It's really hard. Let me show you another slide. It'll help you. Leave it to Beaver, right? And the teacher's name? Starts with an L, Mrs. Landers. I didn't know that. Here's the next one. It's a little easier. I think I'm hearing. Andy Griffith, Helen Crump. This one I had no clue. Here she comes. Little Rascals. They were here the first service. Little Rascals. And her name is Mrs. Crabtree. Okay, this next one should be easy for all of y'all. Name of the show. Welcome back, Cotter. The teacher's first name. Gabe Cotter, extra points now for anybody that can go from left to right and name all the characters' names. Serious. Vinny, Vinny Barbarino, Arnold Horshack, Juan Epstein, Boom Boom Washington. Give yourselves a pat on the back. That was great. You know, teachers play a profound position in people's lives. You know, they impart information, but they also shape character for good or for ill. Think of one of your favorite teachers, not the favorite, that's going to think of one of your favorite teachers. Who is that? Who might that be? And why? I was thinking about this this week because I had a lot of time, because I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know, I had a lot of teachers I really liked, but the one that sticks out in my mind is Mr. Kralovansky. He was a science teacher in middle school. He happened to be a member of my church, but that's not why I liked him. I liked him because he was tall, and he was approachable, and he was good-looking, he was smart. And one day he was teaching in class, teaching about the theory of evolution. And he got through teaching the theory of evolution, which people didn't know in school. And then he opened up his desk drawer, and he pulled out his Bible, and he said, 
Here's another theory or an account. Try and do that in the public school today, right? (laughs) But I really liked him um, because he not only imparted information, but he was also concerned about people's character. This morning's message is on the God who teaches us. We're in a series about God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And each week we are considering one of God's attributes, one of his actions, one of the events in the Old Testament that shows us who he is and how he loves and also sheds light on his son, Christ Jesus, in the New Testament. When we think of God's teaching, most people would go right to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Big Ten, not to be confused with college sports, the Big Ten is arguably the most, or at least one of the most, influential texts in the entire world. There are actually some studies that have been done, and they look at all the world religions, and you find that the Ten Commandments embedded in almost every one of them in some way, shape, or form. I believe because there's God's idea, and they're, they're evident to all, but not all would agree on that. Today, rather than look at the Ten Commandments one by one, which is a a very good endeavor, we're going to instead take a look at the heart behind the one who gave them to us. And I think this is what we're going to discover. Number one, God's love and grace precedes his teaching. Number two, God teaches what he teaches for our good and his glory. And number three, God does not want us to obey his teaching because we must but because we want to. Let me pause here just to try to debunk a little bit of misunderstanding about Old Testament law. It revolves often around the difference between the ceremonial and sacrificial laws and the ethical and moral laws. The the, um, confusion comes when Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and he came um, not not to abolish it. He clearly fulfills the law. It's in, in, as he says he does, but it's how he does it that's important. Now, the ceremonial law, that is all the dietary and, and hand washings and all these really crazy things that you read in the Old Testament, are all put into place for a specific purpose, which is to show people that they are in need of cleansing from sin. Jesus fulfills this because he cleanses us. We are made clean and our sins are forgiven in him, past present, and future. The sacrificial system was enacted to show humankind that sin had a price tag attached to it, and that was the shedding of blood. Jesus shed his blood on that cross, and he fulfilled that one with his death. Then how does Jesus fulfill the moral and ethical law, for example, found in the Ten Commandments? Well, he lives it. He lived it perfectly, without flaw, without sin, and he invites us to do so as well. But some would say, yeah, what about Paul in Romans 5 where he teaches that we're no longer under the law, but we're under the grace of the New Testament? Aren't we freed from all the law, they would say? After all, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 24, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith, which is true. That is a big part of why the law is there. Ceremonial, sacrificial, as well as ethical, moral, is to point out to the fact that we can't do the ethical and moral on our own. We need a Savior. All of them point into that. But here's the short and skinny of it. The law, 
both the older and the newer in both testaments, is there to point us to our need for the Savior. Sin makes us unclean, Jesus makes us clean. Sin is costly, Jesus paid the price like no one else can. And try as we might to live a godly life, he says, I got you on that, I did it, and my grace will cover you. Therefore, as a result of the finished cross work of Christ Jesus, we should not, nor can we, live up to the ethical law as a way to gain salvation. It's just the opposite. Because salvation has, be, has come, because his grace and love comes first, we therefore then live that out as a way to show our love back to him. God's grace and love precedes his teaching. Before he gives the first of the ten, God reminds them of his grace and love that's already there is in, in verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Rich talked about that last week, last week when he talks about how God has freed us from sin. And, but let us explore now a little bit about what's behind that law. Grace pre- precedes his teaching. But let's look at verse 23. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. Now, this is a big deal. If you stop and think about it for a moment, this is not an everyday occurrence. Moses goes into more detail in the Exodus account. He says, when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountains in smoke, they trembled with fear. They, they stayed at a distance. They had just come in contact with the living God of the universe. And they knew that you couldn't live with that kind of thing. It was just unheard of, and it caused them to fear. Think about that for a moment. Let's just pause there so you can kind of get the idea of what was going on. Let's just say that you are um, out, in, out and about, and you commit a sin. You commit one of those sins that you're, you're really, we're not proud of any sin, but it's one of those sins that if anybody else knew, you would be undone with shame. And right after you do it, You hear the audible voice of God, and he says, I saw that. I heard that. I read your mind. And after all I've done to show you how much I love you and all that I've done to bless you, why do you still, if you're like me or if you're partly human, you probably would be undone yourselves, going, oh, my God, forgive me, forgive me. That's kind of what was going on for them. They had just come into the presence of of the holy and righteous and just creator of all that is. I'm not saying that God would do that to you or me, which is good news, I think. But I'm just saying if we understand that's how it might have felt for them. For it's when we experience God's glory and his holiness that our frailty, our frailty, our rebellion, our sin can cause us holy fear. God's people, therefore, respond in verse 27, saying this to Moses, go near and listen to all the Lord God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord God tells you, we will listen and obey. That's it, they say, God. Uncle, we give. Just tell us what to do and what not to do and consider it done. God's response is telling. Verse 29, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. That phrase, oh, that, 
communicates two things. It communicates, I think, a healthy skepticism on God's part. He knows them. He knows that, try as they might, they're going to fail again and again and again, and soon they do. But that, oh, that house has another meaning. It shows, I think, the very heart of God that longs for us. Oh, that, oh, that. Christopher Wright, an Old Testament scholar, indicates that the Hebrew for this phrase, oh, that, has within its meaning that of unfulfilled longing. God is saying, oh, I long for you. I long for you to know me and follow me and know that what I teach you is good for you and brings glory to me. Oh, that. It's interesting in Luke 19, Jesus uses an Aramaic phrase that's very similar to this, if not almost spot on. He draws near to Jerusalem. He begins to weep over the city and God's people. And he says, oh, that would that you, he says, would that you, that longing, that desire. God the Father and God the Son are the same yesterday, today, and forever. For the heart of God revealed in the Old Testament is the same heart of God revealed in the New. He loves, he longs, and out of that he teaches for our good and his glory. See, God gets them back there in the Old Testament. He knows them all too well. He knows how fickle they are. And it won't be long that their bold conviction of just tell us what to do and we're all over it will fade and they'll be back to their old ways. And here's the good news. He knows us too. And he knows, try as we might, we're much, very much like them. And actually, if you stop and think about it, we really shouldn't be. I mean, we really shouldn't be because we live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the outpouring the Holy Spirit that resides within us. And yet, we are as human as they are, even as Christians, and we will fail. Don't hear me saying that we only need to obey God's teaching when we want to. I didn't say that. But I am saying there's times, well, I will say there's times when we don't want to, and that's when we just do it because we know it's the right thing to do. But it's okay if we want more than that because I believe that God surely does. He wants a relationship with us that's vibrant and living and active, not just on Sunday morning for an hour or so, but every day. He wants this intimate relationship. It's interesting when you look at the Ten Commandments that we just read, if you go back through them, or maybe you remember, um, God tells us over and over again, I am the Lord, your God. He says that in verse 6, I am the Lord, your God. In verse 12, in verse 13, in verse 15, and two times in verse 16, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. That that communicates a a relation and, and intimacy. You know how it is when you hear someone talk about someone that's close to them and they say, oh, my dear Sam or my Susie. It's different when they say, well, you know, old Sam or, you know, Susan, how she is. It's my Sam, my, it's that, that intimacy. That's what God wants us to understand, that he is not just God, which he surely is, but he is our God, my God, your God. God does not give us a law to which we are to dutifully submit, for that is, if that were the case, he could just make us do it. 
See, God does not want us to obey his teaching because we must, but because we want to. In verses 30 and following in Deuteronomy 5, God sends his people back to the tents. He says, but Moses, you just stay put here for a minute because I'm going to teach you and then I'm going to send you out to teach them. And he says it will be of great benefit. He says in verse 31, so that you, meaning all of God's people, you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land you will possess. And then verse 32, so be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or the, to the left. Walk in obedience in all that the Lord your God has commanded you. That's quite a nice metaphor if you stop and think about it for a moment. He's saying there's a, a path that I want you to go down with purpose, a destination worth the journey, the end game being the promised land, which in just a few la- verses later is described as a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And that word flowing actually has the meaning, the Hebrew word meaning of oozing, This place is going to be great. You know that manna you had every day over and over and over again. It's over. I'm going to bless you with this this great place. This is a journey we're taking. And then he says, so as you go down this path, as you go down this path of knowing me and loving me and walking with me, I want you to keep your focus. I want to keep your eyes straight ahead towards the goal. We get distracted from the left and from the right. Sometimes it's distraction with sin. Sometimes it's distracted with something that's good. He says, keep focused. Keep your focus. It's worth it. It's good for you. And then to sum up the idea of the teacher, God the teacher of the Old Testament, let me read to you verses six, verses one through three of chapter six. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that It may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing, that is oozing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. About 1,300 years after the Decalogue, after the Ten Commandments, was chiseled in stone, the greatest teacher in the world ever, the world would ever know, came and taught like no one's business. Clearly, Jesus is more than a teacher, for he's redeemer, healer, Lord, and king. However, he is the master teacher of all time. Jesus himself embraces this in John 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is who I am. The well-educated Nicodemus of the famed John 3.16 passage, for God so loved the world, comes to Jesus at night night, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Did you know that in the the four Gospels, Jesus is directly, directly addressed 90 times, and of those 90 times, 60 of them, two thirds, he's addressed as teacher or rabbi, for that's who he is. And then in Matthew 23, the master teacher brings the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, into focus. 
He's addressed his teacher, and he's asked, which of these is the greatest? And he puts them into two categories, the vertical and the horizontal. Love the Lord your God. There you go again. Your God. Love the Lord your God with all that you've got, and love others as yourself. And then let me get, read to you a quote from James Stewart, who was a great theologian. The teaching of Jesus has had a power and an effect with which the influence of no other teacher can even be, for a moment be compared. The Jewish teachers in John 7 say, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And then listen to these words from the lips of the master teacher in John 7. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why? Why are you trying to kill me? And then right before he goes to be with the Father of the Ascension, he says this in Matthew 28, and it's again about teaching. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus teaches, this is love, that you first loved me. Not that you first loved me, but I loved, first loved you. Jesus teaches, if you love me, you will follow my teaching. Duty is obeying because you have to. Love is obeying because you want to. I believe we are to live and obey out of the overflow of his love. Now you may ask, well, what if I'm not experiencing that overflow of his love? Well, I would say a couple things. Number one, if you do not have a relationship with him, with him yet, then I would say that's probably why you're not experiencing that, because it comes when that happens. When you choose to follow Christ as your Lord and your Savior, your leader and your forgiver, when you get it and you step out in faith, that's when that journey begins. And so if you're not sure where you are with that relationship, there's nothing more I would like than you to call me Monday morning and say, Pastor, can I have coffee with you? You know, people will call sometimes and say, Pastor, what, are you busy? And I say, nope. Just waiting on Sunday. <laughs> I would love to be with you, and so would the rest of our pastors and leaders, if you would like to talk about this relationship thing or something else even. So if you don't have a relationship, that's step one. But let's say you do have, for those of you who do know Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you're still not experiencing that overflow of love that helps you to obey him when you don't feel like it, then I would just say simply put, get under the waterfall of his love. Do what it takes to get there. It's really simple. It's nothing that new. Spend time with him. That's how you develop relationships is you spend time with people that you love and who love you. Read of him in his book. That's how you hear his voice. Not because you have to, but because you want to hear from him. Sometimes people tell me, you know, Pastor, I've been praying, 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 and I, I can't hear the Lord's voice. And I'll say, uh, he, he, keep praying, but are you, are you open up? Oh, no, I don't read the Bible. I say, well, you know what? That's how he's primarily going to talk to you. It's right then and there. 
and also be in worship each Lord's Day. You're all here, so I can say that. But be in worship each Lord's Day because, not because you have to, but because you want to praise him and, and receive from him through the word and through the music and through the prayers. And then finally, I would say, feed your soul. Whatever it takes to feed your soul to get underneath that water fill, do what it takes. For me, it's music. I just love music. And maybe it's a, some hymns that just really speak to you, like that one we opened up with is a great one, Praise the Lord Almighty. But focus on those, the, the music that will either emphasizes his love or, for me, it's emphasizing his greatness, his holiness. One of my favorite that's out there, been recorded by a couple uh, artists, but it's called Is He Worthy? And it's basically the song that has this asking these rhetorical questions. I feel bad for the staff who's near my office because once I get latched onto a song, I just keep playing it and playing it and playing it while I'm doing my work and I, it just feeds my soul. And they're probably like, doesn't he have anything else? No, yeah, I do. But this is one lately that I've been listening to a lot and I'm not going to sing it for you, but I am going to recite it for you. It starts out, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? And then it goes into that chorus of, he is. He is. He is. And he wants you to follow his teaching out of the overflow of a God who is worthy and still loves you and me like crazy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are not a teacher who just imparts knowledge, but you are a teacher who not just shapes character, but you are a teacher who transforms lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to transform our lives individually as people, as Christians, but also corporately as a local church called CPC. Help us to know what it means to obey you out of the overflow of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.